Are you that weirdo that binges every episode of Cold Case Files? Well, then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to Happy Hour Gets Weird. Hello. <laughs> oh my God. And we are back again. Another week. We have made it. And here we are with our um now it's like just on brand for an awkward intro so here we go (laughs) we're just on brand i'm cassie and i'm tiffany and this is happy hour gets weird we're a podcast who has cocktails and talks about weird shit weird sometimes terrible yeah shit yes um, I just got a little startled because I forgot that my dogs are in my room and I put my foot forward and one of my dogs likes to hold feet. So he like is holding my foot in his paws and it honestly scared the shit out of me. Did you think there was like a demon under your desk? S- small furry, <laughs> furry demon. Uh, Don't worry. It's just Bigfoot giving you a foot massage. Bigfoot's also into feet, ironically. He's rolling over now because he thinks that I have go-go gadget legs that can stretch to reach to rub his belly with my foot. I, like, I'm so far away from him, but he doesn't understand. Uh, what are we drinking this week? This week we are drinking a festive cocktail, a festive margarita that I'm calling a Jingle All the Way. Ooh. It's basically a cranberry ginger margarita. It's super easy to make you probably have half the ingredients or all the ingredients on hand already it's really good and um we'll post our recipe on instagram yep per usual that sounds delicious yeah it's it's really good all right so this week we're doing another true crime we've been on a true crime kick lately which i'm not i'm not mad at it i am where are the aliens (laughs) We do Where need, are the ghost stories? We need. We do need to do a alien episode. We have that coming up in the new year. But this week we decided to cover or talk about two cases that were unsolved that have been recently solved. Cold cases. Cold cases that have been solved, which is yeah. always a good thing to hear. Yes, a very good thing to hear. And I kind of mentioned this in my um, case that I'm covering. I hope that by people talking about cold cases that have been solved, it brings some hope to people that are waiting for a loved one's case to be solved as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you have listened to episodes that we have done before, As you probably can tell, sometimes our episodes are very lighthearted. Sometimes they are heavier episodes, and this is obviously a heavier episode. Mm -hmm. It's true crime, serious topics. So if you're not in the mood for something like that right now, we totally get it. And maybe go listen to a one and done instead. Mm -hmm. You know, both of these have um, justice at the end, but it's a journey. It's a journey to get there, and it's mine, you know, mine is, is... is very frustrating. So why don't you why don't you go first? All right. So my sources are a couple of different cbsnews.com articles, apnews.com, people.com, 
fox40.com and our local paper, The Appeal Democrat. My case begins on Sunday, November 11th, 1973 in Linda, California. Linda is a small rural town in Northern California that sits about 40 miles away from Sacramento and is located in Yuba County. 12-year-old Valerie Lane and 13-year-old Doris Derryberry walk to the local shopping mall in this small town. Peachtree. Peachtree Mall. I I grew up in Oliver's, which is the next-door neighbor to Linda, and I know what mall you're talking about. Peachtree Mall. On Monday, November 12th, 1973, their mothers reported them missing. Valerie Lane and Doris Derryberry never came home. A few hours later, near Wheatland, California, which is about a 15-minute drive from Linda, mm-hmm. Yuba County sheriffs discovered a grisly scene. The girls' bodies were found along a dirt road by Camp Far West Lake at approximately 1.30 p.m. They had both been killed by a shotgun blast at close range. Doris had been sexually assaulted before she was killed. The investigation began... Yuba County Sheriff's interviewed over 60 people, and the investigation was vigorous for the first few years. But, as these things sometimes unfortunately do, leads went nowhere and the trail went cold. I mean, this is just, um, wow, that is, I I, I feel like those names sound familiar. I grew up in Oliver's, but I happened to go to high school in Wheatland, which is like just so wild that... They were abducted in in Linda and found near Wheatland. It's just kind of crazy and scary. Yeah, this is a local um, this is a local case for us. So, as I said, unfortunately, the investigation didn't go anywhere. Mm-hmm. At one point, detectives did consider one man a suspect after he was convicted for the 1976 rape of two women in a nearby city. Mm-hmm. but no connections could be made between the cases. It was the 70s, so what could be done with evidence was obviously very limited. Over 40 years passed. In 2014, the case was reexamined by Yuba County investigators. Fortunately, the evidence had been meticulously preserved. Thank God for detectives who have the foresight to think, We can't do anything with this now, but maybe someday the technology will be there to solve this case. And in this case, technology did catch up. DNA was found and submitted to the California Department of Justice Forensics Labs for analysis. A few months later, the labs reported that the DNA was a match for not one, but two men. The two 65-year-old men were cousins— Larry Don Patterson of Oakhurst, Oklahoma, and William Lloyd Harbor of Oliverst, California. Both were age 22 at the time and living in Oliverst. Both men had served prison sentences that resulted in their DNA being on file. Harbor for drug offenses in the 90s and early 2000s, and Patterson 
for a 1976 arrest on charges of raping two adult women in Chico, California. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, he he was the man that they had suspected all those years ago after that rape. But as I said, there was no evidence linking them and there wasn't DNA at the time. Mm-hmm. Patterson also had a 2006 arrest for failing to register as a sex offender. And this is the part where I just have to say, say stop letting rapists out of prison. Yeah. Keep rapists in jail. I second that. I mean, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's infuriating. <laughs> To say the least. It truly, truly is. After so many years, both men were given life sentences. However, they are up for parole every five years, which I don't think they'll get. Um, This was the maximum sentence for these crimes at the time they were committed. So that's what these monsters got. I wanted to talk about this detail of the case that kind of... uh, I keep going over in my head when I was researching this story. So once this case came to light again, a man came forward and said he believed he might have been the last one to see the girls alive. He said that at the time he was working at a gas station and two men came in with two girls that fit Doris and Valerie's descriptions. The girls came in to use the restroom and were crying. Oh my goodness. He said the girls looked scared with tears running down their faces. So he asked one of the girls if something was wrong or if they needed help. But one of the men heard him and got in his face, telling him to stay out of it. He watched the men put these frightened girls in the back of their car, gripping their arm as they walked. Once their car pulled away, he said he called the police. I'm, I'm not sure why he didn't call again when the next day he saw that two girls were found murdered. Mm-hmm. I I just don't know. Um, the man said it haunted him till the day he saw the men were caught. And honestly, this small detail of the case deeply disturbed me, obviously. I know that this, I'm not saying it's anybody's fault, but it's just a horrible, just a horrible piece of information that I just wish this hadn't have happened to these girls. Mm-hmm. You know, I think you're, a witness to something that you don't feel is sitting right with you. And I know that um, two men, aggressive men, can be intimidating. Um, that It's just a good reminder when you see something, do something. Yeah, and he said he called. Um, I'm not sure what the police would have been able to follow up on at that point. Mm-hmm. Just maybe driving around and looking for the car is probably all they could have done. Mm-hmm. This gas station was in Marysville, which is a neighboring town to all of all of these are small towns, mm-hmm. you know, next to each other. Heady, it's heading towards Camp Far West Lake from the mall where the girls were last seen. Yeah. So they were on their way. But mm-hmm. it's just awful. Margaret Hastings, the mother of Valerie Lane, said this in a statement to the judge. When she died, a part of me died with her. We were so cheated. Valerie died at 12 years old, and these guys have lived their lives. They are old men now. Mm -hmm. So heartbreaking and so true. 
Along these lines, Yuba County Deputy District Attorney John Bassick said, The families rightly view this as these guys had 43 years of freedom and we lost our daughters. So it's hard to say justice has been served, but we do what we can. Vasek went on to say, The prevailing sentiment is justice delayed is justice denied. I'm glad we can bring some semblance of justice to this case. And although justice seems to have fallen short in this case, I hope that spreading the word about this extremely cold case being solved after 43 years will bring some hope to other families of victims whose cases have turned cold. Our hearts are with the families of Valerie and Doris. Like I said, uh, justice at the end, but it's a journey. And did these girls really get justice? Kind of, sort of. You know, these men got to live their live their lives with freedom and were able to commit other crimes and, you know. Yeah, it's just, it was the 70s and there just, there wasn't a lot that could be done. Crime scenes were covered in evidence that we could use now, but back then there, there was nothing they could do with it. And like I said, thank God the people who packaged that ev- evidence had the foresight to think we need to make sure this is done right so that someday this evidence can be reexamined mm-hmm. when technology catches up, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I totally agree. And evidence aside at the crime scene, just like the CCTV these days, you know, that gas station now would have a camera. That yeah. guy would have a cell phone to take a picture of the car. That guy mm-hmm. would it, – it just – it's different times. And it's unfortunate that, that these sweet girls fell victim to not only the times – but these monsters. Exactly. <sighs> that was a heavy case. Sorry I got a little emotional, but I have two girls and it was just kind of a lot. It's scary Obviously. and it's sad and it, it's frustrating that there's yeah. people out there that, that victimize children and women. And it's it's scary and it's frustrating. Okay, I'm ready to hear your cold case. Uh, it's there's it's okay to have emotions. You're human. If you weren't emotional, I would be a little worried that you were a fembot. Crap. I am a fembot. <laughs> she is on to me. <laughs> That's why I can't ever figure out the recaptcha. <laughs> the what? The recaptcha. When you're doing the password thing. You know when you do the password and it's like click on all the pictures of buses oh. i failed them like 17 times in a row you are a fembot yeah you are a fembot oh my i didn't know that's <laughs> what that was called well i suck at it i just thought it was you're not a robot test i fail it i fail it over and over and over <laughs> i'm not joking i mean i have poor eyesight so i'm always like is that a crosswalk or i can't tell or a bike lane i don't know I'm like, how much of this traffic light do I need to click? All the way down to the base or just the light part? I don't fucking know the guidelines. Okay, that's funny. Um, Okay, I'm glad we had a little laugh in between because this one, this case is sad and frustrating. Uh, I am going to talk about the, the murder case of Michelle Mitchell. And... It is a spider web of information. There's a lot of twists and turns. So, I don't know, keep your hands and feet inside the vehicle at all times. I don't know what what you tell people when you're about to tell them a crazy story. 
Um, February 24th, 1976, in Reno, Nevada. Police receive a call from a panicked woman. The woman says her 19-year-old daughter, Michelle Mitchell, was missing. Michelle had called her mom when her Volkswagen broke down near Nevada State University parking lot. Michelle's mother arrived at the parking lot only 10 minutes later to find the Volkswagen, but no Michelle. Michelle's mom walked across the lot to the same payphone Michelle used to call her and called her best friend, Kathy. She asked if Kathy had seen Michelle, and Kathy was confused because not only had she not seen Michelle, but she thought Michelle was with her dad. Every Tuesday, Michelle and her dad would go bowling and then finish the night with a slice of pie at a local diner. When Michelle's mother found out her husband wasn't with Michelle either, she called Kathy back. Kathy asked if the removable tape deck was still in the car, and it was. Knowing Michelle wouldn't leave her tape deck in her car, unnerved, Kathy told Michelle's mom to call the police. Something was wrong. University police were immediately on the scene, searching and calling Michelle's name in and around the parking lot. Detective Rick DeLuca from Reno PD arrived minutes later. He examined the scene to find Michelle's purse in the unlocked little yellow Volkswagen bug. Michelle's keys were missing, but there was no signs of a struggle. Detective DeLuca surmised something had happened to Michelle on her walk back to her car from the phone booth. Hours after Michelle went missing, a couple came home from dinner Leaving their car running, the man got out to open the garage door. As the door opened, the headlights illuminated a horrifying scene. At the back of the garage, lying face up in a pool of blood, was a young woman. Appalled, the couple called police. Detective DeLuca arrived at the scene, and his worst fear was confirmed. They had just found the body of Michelle Mitchell. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Just at in somebody's garage, mm-hmm. in their garage, in their detached garage. Oh my god! I know. Michelle's hands were tied behind her back, and the cause of death was a severe neck wound, nearing decapitation. Detective DeLuca got to work at the scene, and he soon realized this was a very unorganized crime. The garage was just a hundred feet from Michelle's car. It had appeared to be chosen at random. It had no power or working lights, and the twine that had been used to bind Michelle's hands had come from inside the garage. Michelle had not been sexually assaulted, but Detective DeLuca suspected the crime had been sexually motivated. He also noticed burnt matches around the body and a single cigarette butt, as if the killer used matches as a light source to see in the unlit garage. Police began collecting evidence, including the cigarette butt and a single footprint in the mud. Despite evidence collected, police still had no leads to go on. This is another case in the 70s where Detective DeLuca and his team were meticulous about collecting evidence, even though DNA wasn't in their vocabulary. At this time, mm-hmm. they still were very meticulous about collecting all the evidence, including that single cigarette butt. Informing Michelle's parents was the hardest moment of Detective DeLuca's career. 
Not only had they lost their beautiful 19-year-old daughter to a senseless and tragic murder, but also because of the kind of person she was and how she lived her life. Thoughtful and caring, Michelle was in school to become a nurse. Michelle's family and friends described her as beautiful, fun, carefree, vivacious, witty, devoted, and an all-around wonderful person. Kathy, Michelle's best friend, believed Michelle must have been at the wrong place at the wrong time and fallen victim to a random attack, and Detective DeLuca seemed to agree. Police worked on a timeline based on witness statements. As Michelle broke down on the street next to the parking lot, a young man was walking home. He helped her push the Volkswagen into a parking spot inside the lot. He asked if she wanted him to stay while she waited for help. Michelle said no thanks, she would be okay. Michelle had crossed the street to use the payphone, and a few minutes later, two young college students driving by stopped to let a tall blonde cross the street in front of them. Thinking she was cute, the men pulled over and contemplated asking her out for a beer. But as they looked over, they saw a man get out of the yellow Volkswagen. Assuming Michelle and the man knew each other, the men simply drove off. They described the person as having long hair, and at first they thought it might have been a woman. Another woman driving by saw two people wrestling outside the driver's side door. She thought it was a lover's quarrel and kept driving. Again, if you see something, say something or do something. Several other people reported the same shady person hanging around the area with dark, long, shaggy hair, possibly glasses, maybe men's clothing. Police from the witness statements put together the suspect watched Michelle walk across the street to make her call to her mother, and the killer climbed into her car and waited for her to come back. Oh, fuck. That's so scary. And walked her at knife point to the garage she was eventually murdered in. Detective DeLuca says Michelle's case and the fact that it remained unsolved deeply disturbed him. He wasn't able to compartmentalize and it was taking over his life. For his own sake, he retired from law enforcement after this case. Oh my God. He, he, he just said it was consuming him. Even his superiors told him to take time off and he did. And he said the whole time that I took time off, I just thought about this case. He said, I could not, I could not get over the fact that it wasn't being solved and we had no leads. Honestly, I, I don't blame him. I don't know how people can compartmentalize some of the awful things that they have to see and witness when Mm -hmm. they work in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. I know it's, it's, it's wild. A new group of detectives took, took over the case and continued to work it. Months and years went by and the case remained unsolved. Then Reno PD got a call three years to the day Michelle was murdered. A patient in a Louisiana mental facility recovering from a suicide attempt confessed to the murder of, quote, a girl named Michelle in Reno. 29-year-old Kathy Woods seemed to know details that only the killer would know. And she told her story exactly three years to the day. They call that anniversary syndrome. 
And basically they say that anniversary syndrome is the killer or perpetrator feels so guilty that they confess on the anniversary of the tragic event. Kathy Woods said she was driving home from work, saw Michelle and offered to help fix her car. Woods said Michelle got in the van and they drove to the shed where she said her tools were and offered Michelle to come inside with her. She also mentioned that the shed was dark, which we know was a detail that probably only the killer would know. Mm -hmm. But also you would assume a shed would be dark. Yes. When she asked, when asked why she killed Michelle, Wood said she made a pass and was rejected. In fact, she said Michelle laughed at her and she got angry and killed her. She said she slit her throat and fled the scene in her van. Another critical detail added by a nurse from the mental facility where Kathy Woods was staying. When Woods was admitted into this facility, she was dressed in men's clothing and she looked like a man. Kathy Woods, being the murderer, could have been the reason Michelle was never actually sexually assaulted. Yeah. Okay. I can see the... I can I can yeah. see the pieces kind of fitting together for her to be the the perpetrator in this crime. Right. With confession in hand, Reno police began to investigate Kathy Woods, and it turns out she was in fact in Reno at the time of Michelle's murder. She was a manager of a topless bar 10 blocks from the crime scene. They flew to Louisiana to interview her, and once in Louisiana, detectives talked to Kathy Woods, and she confessed again. She said she left work with the intent to kill because voices in her head were telling her to. She also said Michelle's last words were, please don't kill me. It was never found, but Kathy Woods said she had a knife between 8 and 10 inches long, which did match Michelle's injuries. She said she liked to wear men's clothes, and on the night she killed Michelle, she was wearing Levi's and a Levi's shirt, And when detectives asked what happened to those clothes, she said they were bloody and I threw them away. And she said she could possibly have been wearing glasses. Sometimes she wore glasses, sometimes she didn't. Even witness statements made sense of a possible woman seen with Michelle. With the confession and the circumstantial evidence against Kathy Wood, police felt they had enough to charge Kathy Woods with Michelle's murder. I feel like, I'm sorry to interrupt, I just want to interject this. I feel like in the 70s, if you saw anybody from a distance, it'd be hard to say what gender they were. Because everybody had long, men had long hair, Mm -hmm. women had long hair. Everybody wore wore bell bottoms. Mm -hmm. Platforms, tall, uh, unisex glasses, kind of. Yeah, I feel like all of the clothes were Mm -hmm. very much for anybody. Mm -hmm. So I think it would be hard to discern a stereotypical man from a woman in the Mm -hmm. 70s period Mm -hmm. i i agree and i think you will come well there's there's like i said lots of twists and turns in this case michelle's family was shocked to learn a woman was being charged with michelle's murder michelle's best friend kathy had her doubts even some on the police force didn't think it was possible at kathy's trial it came to light that detectives interviewing kathy in louisiana didn't tape the interview. It was actually typed up by detectives two days later. Uh Uh-oh. 
Kathy Woods got some details correct, but others wrong. Like Michelle had a red Volkswagen, not a yellow one. The garage had a concrete floor when in fact it was a dirt floor. She couldn't say how they entered the building, which police uh, found the footprint outside a side door, an unlocked side door uh, to the building. So they know they entered the building through the side door. Mm-hmm. Although witnesses thought it could have been a woman, all of them described a tall, thin person. Kathy was short and stocky. Despite all of this, the public and detectives had no problem believing Kathy Woods was the killer. So this is three years after a horrific murder in this, the what is it, the biggest little town in America, I think Reno's slogan is. Mm-hmm. Everyone took it personally. They were all terrified that there was a killer on the street. So public opinion was that this was this killer was Kathy Woods. And there was pretty much no saying otherwise. They just wanted this. They wanted justice and they wanted to be solved and they wanted to feel safe. And the police wanted to close this case for those reasons also. Kathy's defense pointed out Kathy's mental illness and her inability to know the impact of her statements. Her defense stated that she falsely confessed because of her mental illness. In fact, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia since, since the age of 13. Oh, my God. Despite this, Kathy Woods was found guilty of the murder of Michelle Mitchell not once, but twice, the second time on an appeal. She was sentenced to life without parole. Holy shit. Yeah. So her mental illness didn't come into play when they sentenced her? They She went to a, a standard women's prison? Mm-hmm. Do you know? Yes. Yes. And wow. they even found her mentally competent to to comp- mentally fit to stand trial, which is um, I've se- I saw videos of her. She was checked out total. She was well. She was schizophrenic. She's totally was n- checked out. A shell of a of a person. There was no way that she was mentally fit to stand trial. I wonder if that was a true diagnosis, though. We've talked about before how in the 70s, a lot of times schizophrenia was kind of an umbrella diagnosis mm-hmm. for people with mental illness. She heard voices. Oh, okay. Admittedly. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. She admittedly heard voices. Wow. Yeah. Uh, in order to move on with their lives, Michelle's family and friends put their faith in the justice system and their doubts about Kathy Wood's conviction behind them they were all kind of they had their doubts but they were hurting and they just said well she was convicted by two juries two not Mm -hmm. one two yeah they have Um, faith in the justice system yeah and they just kind of put it behind them to move on and to kind of get some 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 healing kathy wood spent 30 years behind bars when a cellmate helped her draft a letter to send to an innocence project. Well, this letter sparked a local public defender to review the case. After reviewing the case, public defender Macy Kusich saw many, many holes. While some details were correct, but so many weren't correct. She didn't, Kathy Wood never mentioned the matches Never mentioned smoking. Never mentioned tying Michelle up. Yeah, did she smoke? She did smoke, 
But she oh, okay. did not mention smoking at the crime scene or lighting matches for light. I mean, that I was. I thought a- that I just had like a Matlock moment where I was like, <laughs> she doesn't even smoke. <laughs> um, I thought that too. But then I was like, oh, and then they said, oh, she, she did smoke, but not didn't mention it at the crime scene. The public defender, but she knew this public defender knew that just arguing circumstantial evidence wasn't going to get it reopened or overturned. So remember, this is 30 years later. So this is like 2013, 2012, somewhere within there. So now there's DNA. Now there's DNA. So the public defender turned to scientific advances. She sent the cigarette butt to an independent lab to be tested for DNA. And the DNA came back not only not from Kathy Wood, but from a male. Kathy served more than 30 years behind bars when Detective Fox of Reno PD was asked to look at the case again. And this specific detective, Detective Fox, was close to the case, very close to the case, because he married Kathy Fox, Michelle's best friend at the time that she was murdered. Oh, my God. I just got chills. I just got chills again. This is a crazy story it's insane so so many twists and turns so detective fox went through the evidence and he could find no connection to kathy and the garage there's he couldn't find any connection so he finally went to prison and spoke to kathy and he just asked her why did you confess to this and she explained i'm schizophrenic and i hear voices and i have voices tell me to do things and I do it. And the voices told me to confess. And uh, the details that she gave in her original confession were all things that she could have gotten from the newspapers at the time of the murder. Basically, she read this horrible, horrible story and sort of internalized it. Mm-hmm. And her mental illness took over. Exactly. And what's really sad is uh, they said that Kathy did not have an advocate for her in this mental health facility. She was saying these and not one of the people told her, you know, you should get a lawyer. And they asked her, do you want a lawyer? And she said, no, I don't need a lawyer. But because she, because of her mental illness, they, they fully believe that she did not have the capacity to understand the magnitude of what she was about to say. I mean, people without mental illness falsely confess to crimes. All the time. So we we know these things now, but this is just, this is sad. Mm -hmm. It's a sad situation. mm -hmm. And also, if you falsely imprison somebody, that means the real perpetrator is out there. Yes. I think it was these, um, not Detective DeLuca, but the second set of detectives that took over this case really used... Kathy's confession to fit they made it fit to the facts of the case and Mm -hmm. they just wanted to tell the public that this was over and it was solved and there's nothing to be afraid of and um unfortunately they got it wrong yeah and not only was a 19 year old murder but an innocent woman was in jail for 30 years for that murder it's frustrating so Detective Fox believed her. He believed her and he said, we're going to get you out of here. 
and he went to work. He was like, okay, so we know that Kathy Woods didn't, Kathy Wood didn't do this. And we know that it was a man. We got to find this man. We have DNA. We have to find him. So he worked on the case and the DNA on the cigarette came to match a series of murders committed in 1976 in Pacifica, California. And that's by San Mateo. It's south of San Francisco. Well, so in 1976, while waiting for the bus, Ronnie Casico was abducted, sexually assaulted, stabbed to death, and her body left in the woods of a golf course just feet from the bus stop. Burnt cigarette matches were found around the body, and a single cigarette was also found nearby. Several other women were found in the coming days, same MO, stabbed and sexually assaulted, and the murders became known as the murders on Gypsy Hill. So they have this match DNA, one in Reno, Nevada, mm-hmm. several in, uh, well, some had DNA in Pacifica, some didn't. There were a few. There, there were several bodies women found, but only a few had DNA. So you have DNA, to- DNA by way of the cigarettes or DNA yes. by, okay. Uh, the, the cigarette. Okay. Um, some the cigarette, some, um, like it was very clear that Ronnie was sexually assaulted. Um, they found the cigarette, but that one was DNA from the cigarette, but it didn't mention if it was from like bodily fluids, um, but it yeah. was from that cigarette, but, and the MO was pretty much identical. Mm-hmm. So decades later, Detective Fox believed Michelle Mitchell had been killed by the same serial killer who had become known as the San Mateo Slasher. And he had also managed to evade police for over 30 years. God. It is Ugh. insane. So both police departments came to together and formed a task force because they had dna but they had no suspects to match it to and they Mm -hmm. had no new leads and just when they thought even with dna this would never be solved they got a call from a lab with a match to the dna organ corrections had just uploaded dna for a prisoner who was starting a sentence for a crime committed 10 years years after Michelle Mitchell's murder in 1976. So in 2015, they were just then uploading DNA from a crime that happened in in the 1980s. Okay. We need funds here. Mm -hmm. We need funds to go to DNA testing, Mm -hmm. inputting this information into the system. Mm -hmm. Like, end the fucking backlog yeah. This is so infuriating. There is so much money mm-hmm. in this country that is used for shit that 75% of us do not want to spend money on. Mm-hmm. But I think that every American can agree on this one thing, that <laughs> DNA needs to be tested. Mm-hmm. Rape kits need to be tested. This is so frustrating. It is frustrating. And I'll tell you exactly how it happened. Because you're like, <gasps> why? how in the hell did it take... 20 years to input some DNA. So we have to go all the way back to the beginning before Michelle Mitchell was murdered to January 1975. Oh, did I tell you what his name was? 
This piece of shit's name was Rodney Lynn Halbauer. Okay. Yeah. Hate total him. unknown piece of garbage. Piece of shit. They He wasn't on their radar. Nothing. Uh, so Rodney, this little worm, went to Reno in 1975 and he raped and beat a teen. But she survived. So they arrested Rodney. But they fucking let him out on bond while they were building a case for the trial. Why? He's a violent offender. In the 99 days that he was out on bail, he not only killed Michelle Mitchell, then he drove his fucking piece of garbage ass to Pacifica and murdered Ronnie Cassico, at least, and possibly four other women before he stood trial and was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for sexual assault for the teenager in 1975. Well, get this. After 10 years in prison, he escaped. You know what? what? Yeah, yeah. He escaped in the 1980s. In 1987, he stole a car, drove to Oregon, assaulted a woman in a parking lot. And that's when they got his DNA. How the fuck did he escape? He escaped a shit ton of times. He, like, cut through three fences. They had a prison softball game. He escaped that way. He, like, has escaped every prison he's ever been in. So he escaped from Nevada for the assault of the teenager 10 years after he murdered Michelle and the other women in Pacifica, California. He assaulted a woman in an Oregon parking lot, but he was quickly captured. She survived. Uh, she ID'd him at the hospital and was like, yep, that's him. That's a piece of shit that attacked me. So they, they sent him back to Nevada and he was finishing out his sentence. This whole time, nobody had entered his DNA in the system. Nobody had entered his DNA. When he went to prison in the seventies in Nevada, they didn't collect DNA. It wasn't a thing. Mm -hmm. So he spent this whole time in Nevada in, in prison all the while Detective Fox, Detective DeLuca, Detectives in Pacifica are looking for this ghost. He's already in prison, but they have no idea because they didn't enter his DNA. So when he finished his sentence in Nevada for the rape and assault of the teen, they sent him to Oregon in 2013 to serve his time for the assault on the woman in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. Well, it was in 2013 that they collected his DNA at that time entered it into CODIS, and then it hit on Michelle Mitchell and Ronnie Cassico and all the other women in Pacifica. And that's when they knew in 2013, oh, my God, we've had this guy in custody this entire time. So it took more than 40 years. I mean, the good, the silver lining is he spent most of his life in prison. Besides escaping several times, the majority of the time that Michelle's family and the police departments were looking for her killer, he was already in prison. So the law in Reno or in Nevada was when DNA became a thing, they didn't go back and enter and run and test and enter into CODIS all those old crimes going all the way back that had DNA. They just Mm -hmm. moved forward. I think maybe they went back 10 years, but that's it. So in the 2000s, when DNA became a thing, they only went back to 1990. 
to run those old tests and try to solve those old cold cases. Because of Michelle Mitchell, they now went back all the way and tested those DNAs and ran them. They now do go back as far as they have DNA samples. So that was another silver lining. On September 18, 2018, Rodney Halbauer was found guilty by a jury for the murders of Ronnie Caschio and another victim. Um, those were victims in Pacifica that they could mm-hmm. um, link D- his DNA to. Uh, but they suspect, suspect that he um, murdered more women there. He was given two life sentences per woman. Good. Yeah. Um, and he is set to be extradited to Nevada to stand trial for the murder of Michelle Mitchell uh, sometime in the future. So this is still Ongoing. awaiting a trial, but he's behind bars. He is behind bars. And that's the first thing that Detective Fox asked when he got the call from Oregon Corrections is he said, okay, where is this guy? Do we have to worry about him? Is he on the loose? And they said, he's in prison. He's not going anywhere. God. So he was a serial rapist and murderer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was a 100% wrong place, wrong time, random attack on Michelle Mitchell. Same with all of his other victims. He had a very specific MO, he w- uh, victimology. He would look for a young woman um, distracted, possibly in distress. So Michelle Mitchell, obviously her car broke down and she was distracted and, and somewhat not super distressed, but distracted. And mm-hmm. then in Ronnie Casico's case, she was late for a party and she was in a rush and she was waiting for a bus. So she was also distracted. And in his 2008 trial um, for, in Pacifica, they uh, he before the trial, uh, ple- I believe he pled guilty, and then at the trial he pled not guilty. He said it wasn't guilty. He had many outbursts um, to the judge. He argued with the judge. He was very um, defiant and unruly, and um, at some points in good spirits. It was just. He's just such a fucking bag of monkey shit, to quote Christmas Vacation. (laughs) Um, But I just want to end this episode. Uh, Kathy Wood was released from prison in 2014. Mm -hmm. She is alive and well. She's living in assisted living in Warsaw County, maybe. I believe that's Nevada. Um, And she settled with the state, the state of Nevada for millions. So she is going to be taken care of for the rest of her life, which yes. is great. Yes. I am happy that she got a little bit of justice for her as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What a horrible situation. Yeah. So at the end of this, um, Rodney Halbauer, whatever his stupid name is, is a terrible monster. And I just like to think that he did not walk free in the 40 years that Michelle Mitchell's murder went unsolved. He was Mm -hmm. in prison where he deserved to be. I have to agree. Thank God at least he was behind bars. Unlike in my story where they just got to live their fucking lives. Yeah. Just, you know, 30 years of freedom. I know. And I thought it was poetic that Kathy, Kathy, Michelle's best friend, um, the man that she married ended up being the detective that solved the case um i watched 
and I'll, and that's a good um, segue. The sources I used for this is um, I used an episode of Paula Zahn, actually, mm-hmm. one of my mm-hmm. faves. Um, it was the new episode of her new season so it's on id right now so check it out there's a lot of details in the show that i didn't talk about so um it's a good it's a two-hour special so check it out this case has so much information and it really was like it was a roller coaster of emotion i also used this is reno uh dot com it's a local news for reno and they talked about the case um, and I also just double check kind of the timeline, um, for the Gypsy Hill murders on Wikipedia, the, um, Gypsy Hill murders Wikipedia page and Rodney Halbauer's Wikipedia page just to kind of get the timeline because it was, it was kind of all over the place. And on Wikipedia is where I found out that, um, he is still waiting, awaiting trial in Nevada for Michelle Mitchell's, uh, murder. So, man, I can't believe I've never heard that. I'm a little behind on ID right now, honestly, but I can't believe I've never heard that case. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a lot. Yeah. You did a good job telling the story. Thank you. I was hoping I could get it. So it's was uh, could be understood because there's a lot. There's a lot of information. And like I said, Mm -hmm. it's twisty. Attorney, and um, yeah. So rest in peace, Michelle Mitchell, and the other victims of Rodney Howbauer, and um, our thoughts go out to her family and friends. What a terrible thing. Um, okay. So let's end this episode on a lighter note. That will be easy to get anything lighter (laughs) than what we just talked about. Yeah, that's true. Um. I know that you love to bake and I do you do love to bake it I'm actually I'm mildly good at it you're fantastic at it um I every year we around it's Christmas time we celebrate Christmas um but every year around Christmas time I'm not a baker I've tried to bake a pumpkin bread one year and it did not turn out well it was five pounds (laughs) It was it was heavy. It was five pounds, and turns, I remember this. Oh my god, it was terrible. You're I'm like, not, why is this so dense? And I kept reading and rereading and rereading and rereading the. I tried to make this pumpkin <laughs> bread recipe like eight times in a row, and I just couldn't get it right. Anyway, the point is, I'm not a baker. My husband is in charge of the Christmas cookie making that we do every year. I'm mm-hmm. just the sous chef. I'm the taster. I'm the stirrer. I'm the setting timer person so (laughs) raw cookie dough eater (laughs) yes exactly that's what I am so I wanted to ask you what are your favorite Christmas cookies to make every year well uh we usually do in our family we do like cookie day where we all bake and Mm -hmm. share cookies Mm -hmm. I love doing kind of like classic um sugar cookie cutouts okay uh, I found a recipe where the sugar cookies are actually soft. Okay. I know a lot of times they're hard as <laughs> they rocks. rock hard. Okay. Yeah. So send me that recipe because this year we are going to try sugar cookies. I got cutouts mm-hmm. for my husband's uh, career. Mm-hmm. So we're going to do those. The trick to doing a good cutout cookie, aside from finding a good recipe, mm-hmm. is that you want your cooker – 
your cooker. You want your sugar cookie to be cold when you bake it. That mm. way, whatever shape you cut out stays crisp. Like the lines stay sharp. Okay. You can't you can't put warm sugar cookie dough that's cut out in the oven. It will melt and the shape won't hold. Okay. So what I do is I roll out the, the dough, mm-hmm. cut out the cookies, mm-hmm. take the cut out cookies, put them on parchment paper on it you know, on mm-hmm. a cookie sheet and then stick that back in the fridge Okay, for a little bit. And that way you're putting a very cold cookie in the oven and the edges will stay sharp. Okay. Send me the cookie recipe. Does that make sense? That makes a hundred percent sense. Yes. I also make, um, which I did this a few years ago and I loved it. And cause every year I usually try to mix up like a, a different cookie. I try to mix mm-hmm. it up, but this mm-hmm. year I'm going to do one that I did a couple of years ago which is a maple toffee chocolate chip cookie. And it is so good. It is fantastic. And I'll send you that recipe too. Or I'll just send you some cookies in the recipe. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You can totally mail cookies. I don't think that's weird. I'll eat them if you mail them. Um, (laughs) Okay. All right. So my husband makes his favorite. We're going to do sugar cookies. So send me that recipe. We're going to do that. And I will Mm -hmm. uh, execute your instructions to the best of my ability um you just have to be present and actually follow a recipe when yeah you're that's that's like hard for for me because I have ADHD I get it no I get it um I get it so I we're going my husband does haystacks every year which are my mm-hmm. personal favorite mm-hmm. um and then he does molasses cookies so good which are like if a ginger snap and um i don't know if if a ginger snap had uh, an affair with a a secret cookie it, it, <laughs> they're good they're they're good and then um one last year i think he did the um oh gosh what's a de- neiman marcus gives out warm mm-hmm. cookies mm-hmm. so his mom happened to get the recipe for those so he made those one year. Um, oh my gosh, I love cookies. <laughs> They're so good. I feel like at this point, I know that if a recipe, if a cookie recipe has butter mm-hmm. and a lot of brown sugar mm-hmm. or equal parts brown sugar to white sugar, then mm-hmm. I know it's going to be good. Oh yeah. Because brown sugar, like molasses, makes cookies like chewy and that's mm-hmm. what I like. I mean, everybody likes a different type of cookie, but it's like at this point, I've made so many cookies. I know which recipes to spot yeah. for what my own personal preference is. I like soft, chewy cookies, mm-hmm. and my Me husband too. likes hard, crunchy cookies. Isn't that funny? It Why is. would you like a crunchy cookie? I eat a graham it's, cracker. It's insanity. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so- we don't need to bake. <laughs> Just eat a cracker. Yeah. So I, um, I'm excited for cookie making this year. But I wanted to um, I wanted to ask you, do you have a recipe for those chocolate crackle cookies with the sugar with the um, powdered sugar on top? I've tried to make those before and they they turned out disastrous. I'm just not a baker. I think I do have a recipe for those actually. I think I might have made those one year for cookie day. I think you did. I think I've I had did. them. I, like I said, I try to switch it up um, every year. So that I do a different, I always do a cutout for sure, but I mm-hmm. try to switch switch up the other. I love baking. I know you do. You're good at it. Too, I'm too loosey-goosey for baking. 
I'm like, nah, it'll be fine. <laughs> That's why people don't that don't like baking don't like it because you do have to – you can't be like, this should have more butter. I'm like, just... rules are made to be broken. Well, it turns yeah. out they're not because then your pumpkin bread <laughs> will be 18 pounds. <laughs> so – uh if hey you know what actually if you want cookie recipes let us know we'll put them on our social medias and what's your favorite uh christmas cookie what's your favorite is is there one that we haven't heard about because i'm always down to make a new cookie okay email us your favorite cookie recipe oh my god i want it i if you send it i will make it so it's happy hour gets weird at gmail.com email us your cookie recommendations email us if you want us to post cookie recipes because we will do so. This was a great way to end the episode, Cassie. You're a genius. It was. I love cookies. At cookies make people happy. Who's pissed off at the cookies? <laughs> at the cookie end at the cookie ending. Yeah. I'd rather I'd rather talk about cookies at the end than be pissed off at our broken justice system. <laughs> That's for another day. <laughs> um, okay, well, on that note. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we hope that you have a wonderful holiday season and eat those cookies. That's what they're for. You eat them. Holiday calories do not count. They're they're illegal and they should be in jail. Therefore, they don't count. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. And again, we got a few, a couple more um, really great reviews and we so appreciate it. So thank you so much for rating reviewing and subscribing subscribing yes and don't forget also love yourself lock your doors and light some sage cheers to that cheers to that 